Whether you're all in for cultural Christmas or you're bah humbug. Whether you love shopping or hate shopping. Today's message is for you. Whether you came in this morning and you feel like you're pushing that proverbial boulder uphill. Or the wind is in your sails and life is just glorious. Today's message is for you. Whether you're old or young, whether this is your first time at KBC or your last time, today's message is for you. Whether you're saved or unsaved or unsure, today's message is for you. A quick confession, it wasn't until Friday morning that I even knew what direction I was going this week. Have a couple of weeks before the Christmas program on the 22nd, taking a break from Matthew, and I was in a, in a real quandary. I went down several false starts, paths that didn't bear fruit, and finally landed on something very simple on Friday morning. I asked myself, what do you need to hear? And I was reminded that I am here to preach Christ and Him crucified. And so today, using the five letters of the name Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, I want to give you five glorious truths about Jesus. An acronym this morning is your outline, J-E-S-U-S. Our purpose this morning is to fuel worship for the bored and the distracted. It is to comfort the hurting and the scared. And it is to instill courage in the faint-hearted and the weak. So we begin with the letter J. J is for Jehovah in the flesh. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. There will be a key passage with each letter this morning as we make our way through. John Chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. J is for Jehovah in the flesh. Jehovah is that old King James word for Yahweh, the name of God, the personal name of God that he gave Moses there at the burning bush in the desert. Yahweh, the self-existent one, Yahweh, I am that I am, no beginning, no end, the eternal, independent, sovereign, uncreated God. Jesus Christ is Yahweh In the flesh, he is Yahweh with skin. He is Yahweh in human form and and appearance and reality. So let's look at these verses for just a moment as we begin this morning with the letter J. John 1.1 has echoes of Genesis 1.1, and that's very intentional on John's part. He begins, in the beginning... 
He takes us back to Genesis 1-1 in creation itself where Moses said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so we're at that time where there isn't time yet. There isn't space. There isn't history. There's nothing but God. And so John begins there to remind us and to lay before us the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the message, the speech, the report. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. It's literally toward God. He doesn't say that he's by God or in God or literally with God. The, the actual Greek word is pros. It's the word was toward God. Now, if I was toward you... If we were near each other in a close proximity, and if I was not beside you or with you, but toward you, what does that indicate? We are looking at each other. We are facing each other. And that's the picture John wants us to have of the eternal word. In the beginning, before there was creation, before anything existed except God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was toward God the Father. He was in intimate relationship with God the Father. Gazing upon one another and the glory and beauty of one another in that eternal existence before there was time. And this one who was in the beginning, the word, the word was, in fact, God. And so we see in verse one here, he is distinct from God, the father, and yet he is equal with God, the father. We're beginning to see here in the gospel of John, the the full revelation of the Trinity or the triunity of God. That He is one God in three persons. And here the Word is both distinct and identical. Right? Equal. And so in the Word we have one who is co-eternal, co-equal, co-glorious, co-worthy of worship as God the Father. And then verse 14. And the word, the logos, the message, the, the spoken word became flesh. This eternal one stepped into time, as Michael Card sung. The word became human. God took on humanity. And this next word is so wonderful. He tabernacled among us. That's the word for dwelt. And so John, this Jewish John, this Jewish apostle is going back to that time in the wilderness wanderings when the tabernacle of God was among God's people and the Shekinah of glory of God filled it there in the wilderness wanderings, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And that's the word that he wants us to think of when we think of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He tabernacled among us. God visited the world and moved about among human beings. And John, because his eyes had been opened by the grace of God, says, we saw his glory. We saw his shining beauty. We saw the manifestation of God on earth in human flesh. We saw it. We touched it. We heard it. (laughs) Glorious of the only begotten from the Father. The eternally begotten from the Father. The one and only Son of the Father. And here's another statement of his deity. He was full of grace and truth. Only God can be full of grace and only God can be full of truth. And so right out of the gate in this great gospel of John, in this prelude, which he tips his hand, everything that's coming, he wants us to know that he is celebrating and worshiping none other than Jehovah, 
in the flesh. When we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to understand that He has two natures eternally united in one person. Two natures in one person. Jesus Christ is not half God and half man. That would be a freak. He is not man become God. That is impossible. Man cannot become God, but God can become a man. He is not two persons in one body. He is not two persons in one body. That would be a mental disorder. When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to this unique person who is two natures eternally united in one person. It's a math equation. Full deity from God the Holy Spirit plus full humanity from His mother Mary equals fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. There's such a misconception at times, or we don't think this through. We think that the ascension reverses the incarnation. No, 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 no. The incarnation cannot be reversed. It cannot be diminished, and it cannot be outgrown. Jesus will never outgrow the incarnation. From the moment of his conception in the womb of Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this person will be fully God and fully man forever. Forever. And so when we think about Jesus, J is for Jehovah in the flesh. Son of man, son of God. He is the lion and he is the lamb. What contrast then coming together in one person. What glorious uniqueness. What amazingness this is. What awesomeness this is. Son of man, son of God, lion, lamb. Can you think of two animals that contrast greater than those two animals? The lion with his claws and his teeth and his power and his fury and his roar that can be heard for miles. And the lamb, docile, sturdy, an animal of a flock. Hmm. The songwriter said it so well. Mary, did you know? A couple of applications for the J is for Jehovah. Stay on the tightrope. Stay on the tightrope. And the tightrope is the walk that we have as Christians where we do not fall off either to the side of overemphasizing His deity or fall off on the side of overemphasizing His humanity. Stay on the tightrope. He is equally and fully both. And to emphasize one over the other is in error. It's moving you away from the truth. And so that's a difficult tightrope balance to walk. Most of us as Christians will err on the side of overemphasis on his deity. That's what we do. In fact, some people do that so far that they even forget that he's still fully human. Even right now, as we speak, he is still fully human in a glorified body like we will have one day. See, we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ in every way except We will never be deity, of course, because man cannot become God. But we need to stay on the tightrope. 
We need to walk the biblical balance. We need to be whole Christians who read the whole Bible, who walk this balancing act between humanity and deity, never erring or overemphasizing one over the other, never forgetting one to the exclusion, uh, uh, exclusivity of the other. So walk that tightrope. And then, second application, let us get on our face. Let us get on our face before Jehovah in the flesh. Let us lay a hand over our mouth. Let us walk in awe and wonder of this this great unspeakable mystery that we can never fully grasp or understand. How two natures can become one person and act in complete concert and unity. This is the one we celebrate. Jehovah in the flesh. This is what makes Christianity Christianity. This is what makes the gospel good news. We were so lost. We were so broken. We were so sinful. We were so hopeless that God Himself, the Creator of the universe, became one of us to save us. Never think you're good enough to save yourself if God did that. Never think that you're righteous enough in your good deeds if God did that on our behalf. J is for Jehovah in the flesh. E is for executed and then exalted. E is for executed and then exalted. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 unpacks this for us. Beginning in verse 5, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, and the word there for form means the very essence, the very nature of God, he, he existed eternally in the essence and nature of God, did not regard, I mean Philippians 2.6, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped a thing to be held on to tightly, a thing to be asserted uh, in His incarnation. And so when we come to Christ Jesus, verse 5, we're coming to the One who has eternally existed as the in the nature of God, before He is God and was God and will always be God, and yet He did not regard this equality with God something that He would hold on to or assert. Verse 7, but he emptied himself, not of his deity, not of his love, not, not of his divinity. He emptied himself. He laid aside his independent right to use his authority as deity. He set that aside temporarily for the sake of the incarnation. He emptied himself, taking the form, that's the same word that we saw in verse 6, which means essence or nature, So he was the form of God, and now Paul comes in verse 7, he says he's the form of a slave or a bond servant. He took on the essence of a slave, the nature of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. So the one who was equal with God became a man. Verse 8, but being found in appearance as a man, 
So he was fully human. He lived as a man in every way without sin. He, he ate, he drank, he slept, he got tired, he sweat. He, he cried as a baby. He, he had diapers as a baby. He, he lived as a man. He was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so six, seven, and eight is all about the, the degrees of humbling himself that Jesus voluntarily took upon himself, right? He started out equal with God, and then this great, massive, infinite step down to become in the form of man. But not just a man, he wanted to take on the form of a bondservant. So Paul's just taking us lower and lower and lower here in the humbling of Christ. He wanted to take on the form of a bondservant, the form of a slave. But not just take on the form of a slave. No, he would humble himself even further. The one who is equal with God, being obedient to God, his father, Not just obedient in every little area of his life, but obedient in the biggest area of his life to the point of what? Death. And so he's taking it down yet another notch. So from God to man to slave to death, but he's still not to the bottom because he's going to go as low as you can go in death. And that is the Roman cross. The humiliation and humbling of the Roman cross is the depths of this humbling himself. To the point of death, even death or execution on a cross. As we know, the Roman cross was used to execute criminals against the the, the nation of Rome. This is his humiliation. This is his execution. But then the tables are turned in verse 9. And everything changes in verse 9. The one who was ultimately humiliated beyond any humiliation a human being could ever experience... Verse 9, for this reason also, because he was obedient to the point of death, God, his Father, highly exalted him. God lifted him. God raised him. God made him famous and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That, that's everywhere. That's everywhere. And and that every tongue will confess or agree that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, there's just so much here. But we just want to hit the high notes this morning on these five passages. Here we have the one who is then executed and then exalted. And it has to be in that order. This is like a king... A royal monarch with all of the riches in the world, all the power. Let's imagine a king who rules the entire world or the known world. And imagine this king with great health and great strength and power, everything at his disposal, everyone's life subject to his decrees. Imagine this king decides to disguise himself, take off his royal robes, lay aside his golden crown, step down from his throne, disguise himself, and wrap himself in the tattered clothing of a slave. And and, and to grow out his beard so that his appearance is not evident to his subjects. And this king then goes down into the highways and byways of life, wearing his tattered clothing, smelling like his subjects. And he begins to serve them as their slave, to wash their feet and to care for them, disguised all along as their very king. That's what Paul is describing here in Philippians 2. And then 
To take that illustration further, they find out he claims to be the king. They mock that claim. They ridicule him. They they spit on him. They despise him. And then they execute him, executing none other than their gracious, glorious, benevolent king who had come to do nothing but good to them, who had come to do nothing but serve them. This is Christ executed, then exalted. The application Paul gives us. In verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What, what attitude is this? What mindset are we called to have here? Here's the mindset we're called to have, okay? Cross before the crown. Earth before heaven. Even in the words of Martin Luther, condemnation before justification. Luther had this great saying, he said, you basically got to go to hell before you can go to heaven. And what he meant by that is you got to be convicted of your sins and damned by God and his word before you can know justification. Before you can know salvation. But here as believers, we are to have this attitude that Christ had before us. I think what this is then is a, when we think about that he was executed then exalted, this is a call for you and me to cultivate humility in our lives. And humility is something that must be cultivated. It's like a garden. You've got to plant seeds and you've got to water them and you've got to pull weeds out. Because we are nothing but prideful at our core and our flesh. And pride is the root of all of our sin. And so on the other side of that, we are called here by the model of Christ to cultivate Cultivate, cultivate dependence on God, cultivate prayer, cultivate humility, cultivate keeping yourself in its rightful place. So we're reminded that the way up is down, that we are strong when we are weak, that the path to wholeness involves brokenness, or as my grandparents used to say, don't get too big for your britches. I don't know if that a, is that a grandparent thing or is that a, tech, a Tennessee thing? I'm not sure. Texas too. Well, it's because Texas is here because of Tennessee. So, <laughs> learn your state history. All right. J is for Jehovah in the flesh. E is for executed, then exalted. S is for Sovereign. S is for sovereign. Go with me to Matthew 28. The last chapter of Matthew and the last few words of Christ in this great gospel. Matthew 28 and verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is the crucified, buried, resurrected Christ speaking, not yet ascended, that's mere moments away, giving his church the great commission, and he prefaces the commands of the great commission with this 
all-encompassing, breathtaking, shocking statement of His infinite authority. All authority. There is no authority and there is no power and there is no right that He does not possess as the resurrected Lord. He has all authority. And it says there that this has been given to me. This is what's called a divine passive. We're not told who gives it to him. It's implied. It's a divine passive. He didn't achieve this necessarily. It was given to him. It was granted to him. All authority. It came from God the Father. It was given to God the Son, the incarnate Christ, the resurrected Christ. It had to be given by one who had it. You can't give what you don't have. And so here Jesus is recognizing on the other side of the cross that God has made him Lord and Christ. And that there is no authority anywhere in the universe that does not submit to the ultimate sovereignty of Jesus Christ. He says, all authority in heaven. That ought to take your breath away this morning. All authority in heaven, where the living creatures are, and the myriads upon myriads of angels are, and the the saints made perfect are, and where the throne of God is, and where God is there, God the Father is there in heaven. All authority in heaven. All authority on earth, where, where Satan is, where demons are where they're plaguing God's people to this moment and the authority of, uh, of a creation that longs to be redeemed and its earthquakes and tornadoes and fires and storms and hurricanes and tsunamis and the authority of sinners who go around sinning against each other, committing crimes against each other, killing each other. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There's nowhere that I am not king. There's nowhere that I do not reign ultimately. He is sovereign. S is for sovereign. S is for He is in control of all things. I just I want us to appreciate the shocking nature of this statement of verse 18. It would be as shocking as a monarch who is still living to give all authority to his son. That's why in ancient times they didn't do that. <laughs> in ancient times the king would say, and we see this in the Bible, up to half of my kingdom. You know those phrases? I give you up to, I give you 49% up to half. And the implication is, I'm not going to give away the tipping point of my authority and power. So this is a very shocking statement here. That God the Father would say, I've given all authority to Him. Divested it in Him. This is as shocking as Jerry Jones giving his title of president and general manager to Jason Garrett. (laughs) Who probably won't even keep his job. That's why it'd be so shocking. Jerry Jones owns the Dallas Cowboys, but he's also very apt to say he is the general manager of of the Dallas Cowboys. And you cannot imagine him giving away all authority to Jason Garrett to make every decision for his little empire. What does this imply? It implies total trust. You don't give all authority 
unless you totally trust this person to do what is right, to carry out your will. This implies total trust and it implies total equality. This divine passive, all authority has been given to me. Total trust, total equality. I want to remind you this morning that the authority of Jesus Christ extends to all of your beliefs and all of your behaviors. His authority, His power, His dominion, His sovereignty applies to all of your beliefs. You don't get to decide what you get to believe. What we get to do is seek by His help to interpret this and submit to it. All beliefs, all behavior. His authority extends to our eyes, what we look at, to our ears, what we listen to, to our tongues, what we say. It applies to our stomachs, what we eat, what we drink. All authority means all authority. Heaven and earth means heaven and earth. There's no place that is exempt. There's no person who is exempt. This authority applies to our wallets, to our credit cards, to our checkbooks. It applies to our wardrobe, to how we dress, to why we dress the way we dress. To what we're trying to accomplish in how we dress. This authority applies to your desires, to your dreams, and to your decisions. All of your decisions. There's no decision you make that the authority of Christ does not apply. Does not extend. There's no corner of our life that's off limits to Him. He, he owns it all. This, this authority extends to our language, to our jokes, to our cell phones, to our TV screens, to our emojis. To what we laugh at and what we don't laugh at. This extends to how we parent, how we discipline, how we nurture, how we raise, how we educate, how we feed, how we care for, how we dress, how we teach, how we comfort, how we support our children. This applies to our marriages. It applies to us being faithful to our marriage vows. This applies to when you get out of bed in the morning and when you go to bed at night and what you do in between that time. The authority of Christ applies to every square inch of everything during every second of every day. All authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. Believer, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. This is what lordship salvation means. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You don't get to decide how you will run your life. Not as a Christian. Not as a believer. When you became a believer, you gave the reins to Jesus Christ. When you became a believer, Jesus Christ took over the piloting of your airplane. When you became a believer, you laid down your warfare against him. You surrendered to his authority. You may not have understood it then, but you need to understand it now. He is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. That doesn't mean we live perfectly. That doesn't mean we still don't struggle or we don't sin. We do struggle and we do sin, but we do so in light of his authority. Surrender to his will in our lives. S is for sovereign. U is for unstoppable. Unstoppable. Matthew 16 and verse 18. Look at it with me. Matthew 16, 18. And these are all mammoth passages. 
of importance. J is Jehovah in the flesh. E, executed, then exalted. S, sovereign. U, unstoppable. Matthew sixteen eighteen. After the great confession by Peter of who he is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter has made this confession by the sovereign grace of God, opened his blind eyes, put this truth into his mind. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the unique one, fully God, fully man. Jesus says back to Peter in verse 18, I say to you, Peter, little rock, little little stone, that upon this rock, upon this bedrock, different word in Greek, upon this foundation, really upon myself, upon the foundation of the truth that Peter has confessed, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon that foundation, Jesus says, I will build my church. And the very powers of hell will never prevail against it. Because Jesus is unstoppable. He is unstoppable. I love this passage because... Here we have the builder and the foundation, and they're one and the same. Jesus is building the church upon himself. (laughs) I got this, okay? It's a lot like that thing in Hebrews where he is both the priest and the sacrificial offering. He's both, right? Here he is the builder and the foundation upon which the church is built. So in Jesus, we have an unstoppable force building upon an immovable object. I will not hope to, not try, not maybe, not might. I will definitely build, construct, put together my church. It's mine. I own it. I'm going to, I'm going to die for it. I'm going to purchase it with my own blood. It's going to belong to me. It's not yours. It's mine. And it's my gathered out people. Church is a congregation. Church is an assembly. I will build my assembly. I will build my congregation. I will build my universal church. The church is the converts. Church is believers. So when Jesus says, I will build my believers, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to die for them. He's saying, I'm going to draw them. He's saying, I'm going to save them. And nothing can stop me. I am unstoppable. I will save my people. If you doubt these words, go to John chapter 10 for a moment. The unstoppable Christ. John 10 and the great passage of the Good Shepherd. Let's pick it up in verse 14. I am the Good Shepherd and I know my own. And my own know me, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 15. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Look at verse 16. 
This is the unstoppable Christ. I have other sheep. So in John 10, he's talking about Jewish sheep in the context. And now he's going to refer to these Gentile sheep that have not yet been called. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That's the church. One flock with one shepherd, Jew and Gentile brought together. Because he's unstoppable. Verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Or Ephesians 5. In verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the water, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Why is anyone saved? Because you is for unstoppable. Why is anyone saved? Because Jesus graciously overcomes our resistance so that we freely come to him. Let me say that again in case you missed it. Why has anyone in this room been saved? Because Jesus graciously overcomes our resistance so that we freely come to him. He draws us with unbreakable cords of love and we come. Why is anyone saved? Because he doesn't ultimately leave it up to us. Praise God. He doesn't leave it up to rebels. He doesn't leave it up to those dead in their sins. He doesn't leave it up to those totally corrupt and completely depraved. He doesn't leave it up to us to figure it out. He doesn't leave it up to us to get some great brilliant moment of insight. No, He draws us with unbreakable cords of love and we come. Finally then, S is for Savior. Matthew one twenty one. Matthew 1 and verse 21. One of the great, great Christmas texts of all text. I'll let you find it. Matthew one twenty one. Here's the promise and the command of the angel. To Joseph in his dream about this young virgin that he is betrothed to, she will bear a son. See, there's already been the divine ultrasound. And Joseph, because it is essential that you adopt him as your own, it is essential that you be his earthly and legal father for him to be the son of David. 
You, Joseph, shall name him, and you shall call his name Yeshua. You shall call his name Joshua. You shall call his name Yahweh saves. Joseph, you don't get to come up with his name, but you must name him as his earthly father, and this is the name you shall give him. Why must he be named Yahweh saves? Verse 21, because he will save his people from their sins. He and he alone, without our help, will save. No might, no maybe, no hope to. This is all about accomplishment. He will save. He will rescue. He will redeem. His people. His people. Not all people. Not every single person that's ever been conceived. No, He will rescue. He will redeem. He will call. He will draw. He will save. He will regenerate. He will raise from the dead. He will dwell with His Spirit. His people. The people God has given Him. That's who He will save. You will, she will bear a son. You, Joseph, shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people out of and from their, what? Sins. Sins. S is for Savior. Without our help, he redeems those who belong to him from the consequences of our sins. He redeems us and rescues us from the wrath of God. He redeems us and rescues us from the penalty the power, and one day the presence of all the consequences of our sin. When it says He will save His people from their sins, what He means is He will save them from spiritual death. He will save them from eternal death. And in time, He's going to save us from physical death. So that death will be completely crushed beneath His feet and our feet. And we will be raised with Him who are in Christ, and we will reign with Him who is in Christ Forever and ever. He will save His people from their sins. This is a robust and complete and full salvation. Nothing is left undone when He saves His people ultimately from their sins. Heaven is all about being saved from your sins. Heaven is a place where there is no penalty for sin, no power of sin, and no presence of sin. Jesus is then Jehovah become man who was executed and exalted and is now sovereign, unstoppable Savior. And I want to extend to you an invitation this morning. An invitation not to walk down an aisle, not to fill out a card, not to raise your hand, but an invitation right where you sit, right in the spot you occupy right this moment, I want to invite you to change your mind about your own goodness. If you're here this morning and you're not saved and you're not a believer, that means that you think that you are good. If you're not a believer this morning, that means by definition you are relying on your own righteousness. And I want to invite you this morning to change your mind about your righteousness. That means to repent of it. That means to acknowledge that I don't have any goodness, that I am not righteous in myself. 
I want to invite you this morning to stop running. To stop running. You cannot outrun Jehovah in the flesh. (laughs) To stop hiding. You can't outrun Him and you can't beat Him in a game of hide and seek. He is unstoppable. He will find you. And you want Him to find you before it is too late. Before it is too late and time is up. Stop running, stop hiding, and and stop pretending. Stop pretending that you're something that you're not. You need to change your mind this morning about being morally upright outside of Christ. You need to change your mind this morning about being a good person outside of Christ. No one is good. No, not one. You need to change your mind this morning about being righteous outside of the righteousness of Christ. There is no one who is righteous. That deception is what condemns people to eternity apart from God's grace and love. Stop running, stop hiding, stop pretending, and stop lying to yourself. If you're lost this morning, you're lying to yourself about your own goodness. It's time to come out of the dark cave of self-righteousness and into the light of day. It's time to come out of sin and into holiness and righteousness. It's time to admit your sin and get right with God. (laughs) It is time to admit your sin and make peace with God. It's time to come to Jesus. It's time to come to Jehovah in the flesh, executed and exalted, sovereign and unstoppable, and a Savior for you. It's time to get right with God. The plane needs a pilot. The rebel needs a redeemer. And the empty case needs a treasure. We need Jehovah in the flesh, executed and exalted, sovereign, unstoppable. Savior. Let's bow our heads. And I give you a few moments to answer the call, to respond to the invitation. Don't let this time pass you by. Dear friend, dear lost one, the one relying right now, leaning heavily on your own good deeds. They will collapse under you like a bridge made of spider webs. Your own good deeds will not cross this great chasm. You need to, you need to chunk it all. Come empty handed to the Lord Jesus this morning. Now is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Now is your time. There's no guarantee You'll have this afternoon. There's no guarantee you'll have a moment beyond this moment. Come empty handed to Jesus. Not clinging to your sin. But also not trusting in something you could present to the Lord. Take just a few moments then really to do business with God. To do business with the truth.
Father, we pray this morning you'd be gracious to the lost. Jesus, we pray this morning you would call those who are dead in their sins. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would quicken, awaken, convict, draw to yourself, draw to the Savior. Lord, it is so incredible how we can be so close and yet so far away. How we can be in church every Sunday of our lives and be lost as can be. It's incredible, God, how we can carry Bibles, read doctrinal statements, join churches, get baptized, preach sermons, conduct Bible studies, teach Sunday school, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, give away our bodies to be burned for the sake of the poor, and it all be for nothing. Lord, we thank you for the unstoppable, glorious, matchless Christ. We pray that you draw us closer to him in these days, that we would be enamored with him, in love with him, enthralled by him, obedient to him, captured by him. We pray that that would happen for every soul in this room. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.